Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. This morning's scripture reading will be from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. That was Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Has he made you glad? He has certainly made me glad. And what a privilege it is to sing that together in praise to him. And uh, what a privilege it is to be here again on this first day of the week. Uh, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, our fellow members of God's family. It is so good to look out across this auditorium and see all of you here today. Uh, we are continuing our theme for the year of our Lord 2023 for Him. And everything that we're focusing on in our Sunday morning sermons this year have to do with Jesus and our love for Him and our service to Him and uh, all that our God has done for us through Him. And the hope that uh, we have in uh, seeing him again, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, when we go to him or when he comes to us, whichever comes first, and one of those two things will certainly come first. Over uh, the weeks of this month so far, we have uh, been talking about Jesus under the name Son of Man or under the, the phrase Son of Man, which was his uh, favorite, it seems, description of himself during his earthly ministry, and as the, uh, the scripture reading that we've been looking at every Sunday continues to remind us, it's, it's a figure of speech that is rooted in Hebrew prophecy from centuries before Christ was born. I love the study of history. It's something that I very much enjoy, and uh, I know some of you do as well. One of our deacons, uh, Matt Jackson, is a history teacher, and I I know that he loves the study of history and to teach it, and, and many of you as well also love to study history. And there are a few of, in, of you in here that, that do not love to study history, and well, that's okay too. There's an old saying that goes, uh, those who do not know their history or learn their history are doomed to repeat it. And I actually disagree with that statement. I'm going to tell you why here very briefly. Um, those who study history with an eye to the story that it truly tells, are able to learn lessons from history that they can put into practice in their lives and proceed forward in a way so that they learn from past mistakes and improve as individuals and as a people in order to move forward in a uh, better way. Most people simply study history to learn facts about stuff that's happened before, but the lessons are not spiritual in nature. And they do not explore the motivations that lead people and thus families and culture groups and nations uh, to, to do the things that they do. 
I believe that the world itself is doomed to repeat its history over and over and over again as long as it continues to fail to see the truth of the matter that history really is his story. And until you recognize that, it is not possible to learn the lessons of history. Only Christians, I believe. And someone might say, well, that's a prejudicial statement. It is uh, a statement that puts people in certain categories, and I get that. But it's not a prejudicial statement. There's no pre-judgment about that statement. The statement is a conclusion from having judged the world, considered the world, discerned the reality of the world, looked at a study of history as, as these cycles of human rebellion, a, a civilization increases in its prosperity and its standard of living and its glory and accomplishes. And, but when it gets to the top of that hill and thinks, well, we are the, the best thing, the best civilization the world's ever seen, then suddenly people begin to to get lax about their morals, they forget about the God who got them to that place of prosperity, and the snowball starts rolling downhill. It's happened over and over and over again. And we certainly hope and pray for revival in America and in Western civilization, but if revival does not occur, the same thing will will ring true with this civilization that has rang true with all of them that have predated us. We as Christians are the one that know, ones that know this and are in a position to inform the world of this. And we've got to renew our boldness for this because we serve Christ. We don't serve anyone or anything else other than Jesus our Lord. The Bible tells his story. Now the oldest portions of the Bible, uh, as far as when the various pieces of it began to be written, uh, began to be written about 3,500 years ago approximately. So well, maybe even closer to, uh, to 4,000 years ago, 3,800 years ago or so, the oldest portion of the Bible began to be written. But the story that it tells, prophets writing uh, by God's uh, prompting and under God's uh, supervision and his leadership, what we call divine inspiration, tell the story of history all the way back to the beginning of time. A lot of stuff has happened. A lot of water has flowed under the bridge of human history. But there are two events so far, two events in history that stand out above all others as the greatest things that have ever occurred. And when I say great, I simply mean great in terms of magnitude not necessarily in terms of quality. Because the first of the greatest events that has occurred in history is what we call the fall. And the fall is an event that occurred that is great in magnitude, but not great or fantastic or happy in its results. Because the fall, we read about in Genesis 3, is the, the point when Adam and Eve, our first parents, still in paradise garden with God, walking with Him in the cool of the day, being in perfect fellowship with God and with each other, were tempted by Satan and made that choice to rebel against God. And the fall has had cosmic effects that have affected everything. It has affected all of our lives. We live in a fallen world as a fallen race, experiencing the effects of that fall that will continue to be the curse of this earth and of this world until the Son of Man returns. We read in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. 
But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Well, there's so much to unpack in that uh, passage. Uh, we're going to continue to move forward. And some of these elements we're going to develop as we go forward. But, but I want you to notice here what Paul tells us about the results of the fall. The results of the fall are encapsulated, summed up in the concept of death. Death came into this world because of the human fall into sin. And all of the, uh, what we might consider less severe effects of the fall than death are simply little down payments on death, little reminders of our mortality that is a result of sin. Even when you catch a cold, it's a little reminder of your mortality, of the fact that this body isn't going to live forever, that it is frail, that it has been subjected to the uh, to the, the, the harsh elements that we live in. It has been subject to the possibility of, of suffering harm from accidents or from violence, that we are not fully secure in eternal life as long as we live in these bodies. And all of that is a result of sin. And it is a, an absolute uh, pillar of, foundation of, our reality that we live in every single day. So we can say that the fall set the tone for every second of life in this creation and none of us are free from its enduring effects. That was the first great event that has occurred in history. But God's love is stronger than the fall. It is greater in its magnitude than the fall. And God didn't have to go take counsel with the heavenly court. He didn't have to think about what he was going to do about the problem of sin when it became a reality in his creation. He already knew what he was going to do because known to God are his plans from all eternity. He, he knew what was going to happen before he ever said, let there be light. And so God came to Adam and Eve in the garden when they were hiding from him because they had realized their nakedness. They had come to realize their sinfulness and that they were separated from him because of it. And they were afraid, the Bible tells us. And God calls out, Adam, where are you? Adam confesses that he was hiding. And the dialogue that flows from that, uh, the, the devil is still there in the garden in the form of the serpent, and God has a conversation with Adam and then Eve and then Satan. And to make a long story short, the crux of his comment to Satan is in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, when he says to the devil, I, God says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, between you, devil, and the woman. And between your offspring, in other words, those who will follow Satan over the long roll of history that was to come, I will put, put uh, enmity between her offspring, uh, between your offspring and her offspring. We have the first messianic prophecy here in Genesis 3.15. God says that there's going to be a child born to woman, her offspring. And notice the pronoun, he shall bruise your head. Satan, and you, devil, will only be able to bruise his heel. The first Messianic prophecy uh, gives us certainty that the Savior was going to be a human being, a child born of woman, and that he was going to be a man, a human man. Remember, we read from Romans 5, where Paul sums up the effects of the fall, and he says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. We'll talk about that more in just just a moment. 
But then we, as we read the history of this world that the Bible unfolds for us, again, the Bible is not primarily a history book. It doesn't give us all of the details that we, that we might even like. I would love for many of the stories that we read about in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament about how things came to be the way that they are. I would love it if there were more details in some ways. But the stories that the Bible tells gives us the history that we need to understand. So that we can understand how God, through his providence, has led the world to be in its current state where we have heard the proclamation of the gospel and have the hope of the gospel that we do enjoy. And so the next phase of things is what we would call the, the, the era of the patriarchs or the fathers. And of course, we might think of Noah as the first of the big shots among those guys. And the Bible tells us that, that through Noah, God saved us all. That is the whole human family that is alive today by saving him. We're all descended from Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. That's where every human being on the world today comes from that same one family. And thus we as human beings, regardless of our ethnicity, we all are in fact one family. We come from the same roots. But God chose to save Noah and thus saved us. And he chose his firstborn Shem, from whom all the Shemites are descended. Notably among the Shemites, the Jews. But God chose Shem to receive that promise that he had laid the down payment on in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 9.26, uh, we have the statement that calls out Shem as the one through whom that promise is going to be developed. And then, of course, one of Shem's descendants, Abraham, becomes the father of the faithful. And he was promised offspring through Isaac. That offspring that the New Testament tells us ultimately was pointing again to the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman, the promised Messiah, the Christ child, Genesis 21, verse 12. And uh, Jacob, the son of Isaac, whose name was changed to, changed to Israel, he foretold uh, on his deathbed in those prophecies in uh, Genesis chapter 49 that the appointed son, the one that the whole human race was looking for to save us, would be a ruler and that he would come from the tribe of Judah. And thus we call him the lion of the tribe of Judah. Then we have Moses coming onto the scene. Because uh, God's providence through Joseph had brought the whole of the nation of Israel down to Egypt, and there they had prospered for a while, until the Bible tells us that a, a Pharaoh arose, a king that didn't know Joseph, didn't care about him, didn't love his people. And the whole of the people of Israel were enslaved for nearly 400 years. And finally, the time came for God to deliver them. The Exodus is God showing the world He is the only true God. If you will study in detail the ten plagues, you will find that each one of them was designed, was aimed at a power that, according to the Egyptians and their idolatry, supposedly was in the hand of one of their gods. And so every one of the ten plagues showed that the God of Israel was more powerful than their false gods. Their gods that controlled the river Nile couldn't resist the power of Jehovah, of Yahweh God. Their gods that controlled the health of the livestock and the weather could not resist the power of Jehovah God. Their, their gods who supposedly controlled the, the, the boundaries of life and death and, and secured the life of Pharaoh and his family could not resist the power of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Plague after plague, God showed them who really was God. And, and the big picture of the Exodus is it becomes, again, a type. Like Adam was a type of Christ. He, he was the symbol of which Christ is the fulfillment. The Exodus is also a symbol 
of which the end of time and the second coming of Christ will be the ultimate fulfillment. And so the Exodus shows the world that God is the only true God and shows us that if we will maintain our trust and loyalty to him, he will deliver us from all toil, from all evil, from all oppression, and that he will give us rest in a good home and a wonderful place. That is the hope that we enjoy, and it's the pattern that the Exodus has set up that we're looking forward to today. And so I've used this concept at least three times in the sermon so far, type or, or symbol and its corresponding antitype or its reality that fulfills that or answers that symbol. And one of the things that you need to do as you grow in a student of the Old Testament of your Bible is to, to see all of the, the types or the symbols that God put in place while he uh, worked through the history of ancient Israel. All of these things were ultimately pointing to what he was going to accomplish in the coming of his son, the Son of Man, Jesus our Lord. We live in, in a day in which we can read the New Testament now. And we can see how all of these little symbols that God gave in his teaching and his revelation over thousands of years have found their answer and their fulfillment in Christ. We today live in an era in which we can understand the whole of God's plan. And that is a great blessing. And so the highlight of Moses' ministry, in my opinion, is the prophecy that we read of in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 15, or chapter 18, rather, verses 15, and then the second part of verses 18 and 19. Moses wrote, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. We have here again the affirmation that, that this prophet that was going to be raised up, a prophet like Moses, meaning a law-giving prophet, a prophet that speaks to God face to face, a special prophet exalted above other prophets, that he's going to be of the people of Israel among you, from your brothers, Moses asserts. And listen to what Moses writes, it is to him you shall listen. In other words, even the law of Moses, because the book of Deuteronomy is in the midst of the five books that compose the whole of the law of Moses, the law of Moses itself confesses that Christ is even Lord over the law, because he himself is ultimately the lawgiver who revealed his will to Moses because of the will of his heavenly Father. And so Moses prophesies that, that when this great prophet like he was to come, that, that all people who would be right with God would listen to him. And, and Moses says, God speaking through Moses, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. By the way, a not so subtle contrast is made here between Moses and between Jesus. Moses was commanded to speak to the rock, to strike the rock, and he failed to do all that God commanded him to do. He failed to live up to the standards that one must meet if he is to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of Man. And so, through Moses, God prophesied of one who was yet to come. We continue through our Bible story, and of course there's a lot of history between uh, Moses and between King David, but the next mountaintop of prophecy that we might find, the next uh, big development we find in Scripture happens to be during the life of the great King David himself. And God made several promises to King David that we read about primarily in 2 Samuel chapter 7, but in, uh, for in, 
in, us, in 1 Samuel as well, and, and we read more of those uh, prophecies or those promises in other chapters of 2 Samuel as well. But in 2 Samuel verse 9, God promised that he would make King David's name great. He promised in verses 11 through 14 that he would establish a house, and what that means is a royal dynasty. There is, in fact, a royal family of the human race. There's only one royal family, truly royal family in the human race. It is the dynasty of King David. Your king is of the house of David, and so it will be for eternity. So God promised to establish a house that is a royal dynasty for David through his offspring, and certainly his mere mortal offspring carried that promise forward, but its ultimate fulfillment then, David himself as the righteous king becomes a type of which Christ is the ultimate answer, antitype, fulfillment, the ultimate offspring, offspring with a capital O, is Jesus. God would allow David's son, the type again is Solomon, who built the physical house of God in Jerusalem, the temple there. But God would allow his son, capital S, the Son of Man, Son of God, to truly build God's house, His cosmic temple. 1 Corinthians chapters 3 and chapter 6, of which we, brothers and sisters, are the living stones. 1 Peter chapter 2. We read in 2 Samuel 7, 13, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom, speaking of Jesus, forever. And so God has done. Time would fail us, Brothers and sisters, if we were to, to continue to, to focus with as much detail on all of the messianic prophecy that we find in, in, our, in our Old Testaments of our Bibles, we just wouldn't have time to cover it all. And there's so much. Brothers and sisters, there have been identified by Bible scholars over 300, over 300 specific messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And, and listen, regardless of how one dates the finishing of the Old Testament, the, the, last, the last pen stroke of the last book of the Old Testament, even the most liberal scholars who question everything that they read in the Old Testament cannot deny that the whole of the Old Testament was completed by 200 to 250 years B.C. Some of it was written, as I said, oh, around 1,500 years B.C. The story it tells reaches back thousands of years. Please listen to me. Over 300 specific messianic prophecies. That's not even included all the generalizations that are messianic in nature. Over 300 specific messianic prophecies in the 39 books of the Old Testament that absolutely, unequivocally, with no debate, predate the birth of Jesus by at least two and a half centuries. Let that sink in. If you understand this, and you understand what the Messianic prophecies and scriptures are, are actually saying about the nature of the Bible, you will, as a rational human being, will be left with one choice, and that is to regard the Bible as the inspired and inerrant Word of God that it actually is. There is no other explanation for how these prophets, writing in at least two versions of a language over the course of thousands of years could come up with 300 specific statements that Jesus himself all fulfills. There's only one explanation for that, brothers and sisters, and that is that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. 
And those prophets who wrote the books of the Old Testament were, in fact, the friends of God, and they were writing the word that he was leading them to write. The Bible is the word of God. Well, let's review, then, a cross-section of the Messianic prophecies that proceed from David on through uh, the books of wisdom literature as well as the prophets themselves. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem to a virgin, Micah 5, verse 2, Isaiah 7, verse 14. He would be heralded by the messenger of the Lord, Isaiah 43 through 5, Malachi 3, verse 1. He would be a miracle worker, Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. He would preach good news, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Messiah would enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey, Zechariah 9, verse 9. The Messiah would minister in Galilee, Isaiah 9, verse 1. He would cleanse the temple, Malachi 3, verse 1. He would be rejected by the Jews, Psalm 118, 22. And he would die a humiliating death, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. And it's amazing the kind of detail the prophets give us about that death. Because that humili humiliating death would involve rejection, Isaiah 53, verse 3. Betrayal by a friend, Psalm 41, verse 9. Being sold out for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, verse 12. He would be silent before his accusers, Isaiah 53, verse 7. He would be mocked, Psalm 22, 7 and 8. Brutally beaten, Isaiah 52, 14. And spat upon, Isaiah 50, verse 6. His hands and feet would be pierced, Psalm 22, verse 16. He would be crucified with thieves, Isaiah 53, verse 12. He would pray for his persecutors on the cross, Isaiah 53, verse 12. His side would be pierced, Zechariah 12, verse 10. He would be given gall and vinegar to drink, Psalm 69, verse 21. None of his bones would be broken, Psalm 34, verse 20. They would cast lots for his garments, Psalm 22, verse 18. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, verse 9. He would rise from the dead. Psalm 16 verse 10 he would ascend into heaven Psalm 68 verse 18 to sit at the right hand of God Psalm 110 verse 1 and this is just a handful just a handful a representative handful of the over 300 did you recognize the detail of these prophecies those interested in the occult and mystics and those who don't know Christ but they believe in some kind of supernatural will look at, at so-called prophets like Nostradamus. Get online sometime if you want to and read the things that he wrote. Anybody can write those vague sort of things and search for someone a century later that fulfills that kind of stuff. This isn't vague, brothers and sisters. These are specific details given centuries before the Messiah was born. If you'll bear with me, let's go through this exercise again. But let's look at what the New Testament has to say about Jesus. Because uh, he just happened to be born in Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary, did he not? He was heralded by the messenger of the Lord, John the baptizer, wasn't he? He was a miracle worker, the greatest of all time. He preached good news, didn't he? The good news. And didn't Jesus enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Yes, indeed he did. He ministered in Galilee. He cleansed the temple. He was rejected by the Jews. And don't we read in the four Gospels how Jesus died that humiliating death, Luke 23, 46 and parallels? 
Don't we read in our New Testaments how that death involved rejection? It involved him being betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Doesn't it tell us how Jesus was silent before his accusers as he was being mocked, brutally beaten, and spat upon? Doesn't the Bible tell us that story? Doesn't it tell us that his hands and feet were pierced as he was crucified between two thieves? Don't we know how Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. His side was pierced and blood and water came forth. They gave him gall and vinegar to drink. None of his bones were broken. The soldiers cast lots for his garments. He was buried in the tomb belonging to the rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Hebrews 1 verse 3 my friends Jesus Christ is the Messiah that's who he is and we live and die in that truth and if we will live in that truth as long as God gives us breath in this life we will live forever in this truth brothers and sisters what God has done for us through his son the son of man our beloved Jesus is the greatest thing that has ever been done and at its great in its effect was the fall into sin the answer to sin the sacrifice of the son of God on the cross was the greatest act that has ever been performed in history by anyone period because of that even greater things await us in the future in God's own good timing hmm I am so, so deeply grateful that God put me in a place in history where I could be raised in a Christian family and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ ably taught. It is the greatest thing that has ever been done for me to give me the opportunity to know Jesus as the Christ. Well, that word Messiah, of course, is the Hebrew word, which corresponds to the Greek Christos, translated as Christ in our English New Testaments, and it literally means anointed one. Messiah or Christ literally means anointed one. Now, there were ones, plural, who were anointed by God with the holy anointing oil according to the law of Moses. Prophets were anointed with the anointed oil, setting them apart. And the oil itself was a type. It, it was a symbol that represented something much greater in nature. The anointing oil would be poured on the head of the individual who was being set apart for whatever office he was being called to in service to God. But it represented, it represented the favor of God's Spirit, the anointing of God's Spirit being upon that person. Which means they were now one of the objects of God's constant attention. God's constant protection and provision, and people were to recognize them as in some way, according to the office, officially representing the interests of God in the community of ancient Israel. These were God's special people. And so prophets would be anointed with the anointing oil. Priests would be anointed with the anointing oil. Kings would be anointed with the holy anointed oil. But none of the prophets, not Elijah, not Elisha, not Isaiah, not Zechariah, none of them were the anointed one. None of the priests, not even Aaron, 
Not Phineas, great Phineas, not Eliezer, not Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. None of those that we read about over the course of the Old Testament story by name that were well-known and important priests, none of them were the anointed one. None of the kings, none of them, not Uzziah, not Hezekiah, not Joash, not even Solomon or his father David were the anointed one. Because the anointed one is not merely a prophet, brothers and sisters. The anointed one is not merely a priest, beloved. He's not merely a king. The anointed one is all three. The office of prophet, the office of priest, the office of king, all of which were types, find their fulfillment, their reality, their antitype in Jesus our Lord. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And he has fulfilled the law. And he has revealed all God's will to us in his office as the foremost and greatest of God's prophets. He has bridged the gap between us and God because of our sins through the priestly sacrificial offering of himself. And he's carried his own blood into the heaven of heavens, into the presence of God, and there offered it before God on the altar of heaven so that the atonement for sins has actually fully and finally been accomplished. He's the great high priest of all high priests. And he has proven his worthiness to lead you and me through everything by blazing a trail that even leads through death, conquering death to regain life again on the other side. Brothers and sisters, is there any leader in the world that is so worthy of your absolute loyalty? There is none. Christ is Lord. Christ is King. The Anointed One, the Son of Man, He is our great and fearless leader. We've been talking about the appraisal of a human being during the course of this series. What's the worth of a single person? The offering of Christ, I repeat, is the answer to that question. And the whole story of history truly told as his story teaches us that you and that I are worth saving. This morning I call to you again. If you're a person that has sins in your life, you've never made peace with God because of your sins. You know right from wrong, you know what you ought to have done, and you know you've violated the will of God many times and many ways in your life. There remains a sacrifice for you. The great high priest Jesus has sacrificed himself. He has poured out his perfect sinless blood that your sinful stains could be washed away in its flow. This morning, if you've never confessed your belief in Christ, you need to confess that Jesus is the Son of God that you believe. If you've never made the decision to give him your life, it's what the Bible calls repentance. You need to make the decision to turn away from your sins and turn towards the faith, the face of Jesus and begin to live according to his word. Acts 17, 30 and 31, you cannot be saved if you will not. And you must make the decision to put Christ on in baptism, being buried with him and raised to walk with him in newness of life. The water is ready and it is warm. We would love to unite you with your Lord and Savior today. This morning, if you are a baptized believer that needs the prayers of this church for whatever reason, the front pews are open. Don't delay. Come. Let's we together stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word.
If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.